0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now, here's Pastor Sean. Well, last, not last week because we weren't here, but a few weeks ago, we started looking at evangelism and how Jesus shares the gospel. And if you remember, We looked at four stories. We looked at how Jesus treated the little children, how Jesus treated the rich young ruler, how Jesus treated the blind beggar, and how Jesus treated Zacchaeus. And we kind of looked at Luke's portrayal of Jesus doing evangelism. What I want to do, since we haven't been in John hardly at all, um, as we're bringing this kind of semester to a close, we've been a lot in Matthew and Luke, but I want to move into John's gospel because it's a lot different than the other three Gospels. And I want to look at three stories. So we're going to be in John 3, John 4, and maybe John 6. You'll have, you have the notes to John 6, but we may not get there tonight, depending on how fast we go. But we're going to look at Jesus and how he deals with Nicodemus, Jesus and how he deals with the woman at the well, and Jesus, how he deals with the crowd of 5,000 that he feeds. Okay, so boom, boom, boom. Three, four, and then six. But before we get to John chapter 3, because it's probably the most John chapter 3 is probably the most famous passage of scripture in John's gospel. Because what do you have in John 3? John three, sixteen, But you've got 15 verses that come before John three sixteen. okay? So what leads up to that? But before we turn to John chapter 3, I want us to go back to the Old Testament because the imagery that is used in Ezekiel is going to play very heavily into what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So, we will start, if you want to turn in your Bibles or if you want to look on the sheet, this may be easier that you get the sheet so we can actually look at the scriptures. Um, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, this is God speaking, and God makes a promise of what he's going to do in the future. Now this is in the Old Testament period where this is not a reality yet, but God's promising in the future he's going to do this. And so listen to what God says he, do, he will do. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Okay, let's just stop right there. What imagery does God say he's going to do? He's going to what? Clean us with what? Okay, so there's, there's some type of issue with water here. There's a cleansing with water. And it's, is, it, is it physical cleansing or is it more spiritual cleansing? He's going to clean us from all of our um, impurities and all of our idolatry so it's more of a spiritual cleansing okay let's move on to verse 26 i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put within you i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules what's the second big ticket item here that he says that he's going to do that god's going to do I'm going to put my spirit. So you've got these two imageries of water and spirit. And who's doing all this? It says God. Look at how many times, count how many times it says I will. I will sprinkle. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk. So who's doing all this? God. God. God is the one that's doing the action. Don or somebody, could you go close the door or somebody, just so we don't have, anybody, just so the youth don't um, invade our airspace. So does God expect us to cleanse ourselves? Does God expect us to replace our heart of stone with the heart of flesh? Does God expect us to put the Holy Spirit within us? Does God why, why does God not expect us to do that? Can we do that? We can't do that because we are sinners. We're dead. We're, we're spiritually without that. So in bold print I have there, notice the primary person who's doing the action God is. We don't cleanse ourselves. We don't replace our sinful hearts. We don't put the Holy Spirit in us. All of this is something that God does. Now, if God alone does it, who gets the credit for it? God, okay? Now, let's go to John chapter 3, and with this passage of scripture in Ezekiel ringing in our ears, water, spirit, new heart, Holy Spirit, cleansing, cleansing, Let's go to John chapter 3, and let's let's pick up in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 9. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, where have we seen that before? I wrote it on the board to help you. Water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Okay, let's make some observations about this text. Let's go back. Who's Nicodemus? He's a ruler of the Jews, he's a Pharisee. Now, when I look at verse uh, da, 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 10, are you the teacher of Israel? Does yours say the teacher or a teacher? The teacher. The teacher. Many scholars believe that Nicodemus may have been one of the highest schooled, intellectual, scholarly Old Testament guy there was, the teacher. Like, everybody came to him. He's the teacher. So let me ask you a question. If you are the teacher of Israel, would you have read the Old Testament? And you probably would have memorized it. Would you have read Ezekiel? Should have, okay. Would you have come across that passage of Scripture that says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be cleansed and I will put my Holy Spirit in you? Would he not understand that? That's why Jesus says, Don't marvel that I tell you, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is thinking in physical terms, isn't he? He's thinking of the image. Now, wait a minute. How do I go back up into my mother's womb? second time and then jesus says no 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 you don't understand what i'm saying you must be born of water and spirit but i want you to notice the two things that jesus says you cannot do unless you are born again so what's the first thing you guys help me out by looking in the text you can see that there in verse three you cannot see Okay, you cannot see the kingdom. Now, interesting metaphor there, right? You can't see it. What happens when a person can't see something? What does it mean? What does it mean? That person is blind. Does the Bible say anything about lost people being blind? I'm glad you asked. There's a verse right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 4 through 6. Paul says, In their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Who's the God of this age? Satan has done what? He's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? Seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. So, Non-Christians are, we could say, blinded to the kingdom because of their sin. So in order to be able to be unblinded, what does Jesus say has to happen to them? They have to be born again. When you get born again, you are able to what? See. And how does Paul address that? Let's keep looking at verse 5 there in 2 Corinthians. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God said, Let there be light in your heart, and you were able to see Jesus for the very first time as who He is, that's just another way of saying you were born again. Because what does Nicodemus say? Or what does he say to Nicodemus? You cannot see the kingdom unless this happens to you unless you're born again. Paul says, the god of this age has blinded you from seeing and God said, "Let there be light." Now, who who causes a light to shine there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Do you pull the light? Do you turn the light bulb on? God does it. Do you see a theme here? Who's doing everything? God. Okay, what's the second thing that Jesus tells Nicodemus he cannot do unless he's born again. You will find this in verse 6, I think. Let's look. I mean, verse um, 5. You cannot enter. Okay, this is even a little bit more, um, gr- more um, dangerous because not only can you not see it, but you can't even enter it. Why can't you enter it? What prevents you, what prevents a sinner from entering the kingdom of God? Sin. Okay, being dead in sin. Jesus in John 8, 34 said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Can a slave liberate his or herself? You're in slavery to sin. You you are barred access. So think about the dire picture this paints of a lost person. They can't see and they can't enter. And there's nothing they can do to remedy that. They can't make themselves see and they can't make themselves enter. Why? Because they are a blind slave. That's why Amazing Grace is so cool of a song. I once was blind, but now I see. Do you see where he gets John Newton gets the imagery here? But what has to happen to us to uh, to what has to happen to us to be able to see the kingdom or what has to happen to us to be able to enter the kingdom? Jesus says you must be born again. Now, $10 million question. Do you cause yourself to be born again, or does God born again you? What? The second one. And how do I know that? Am I just making that up? What does verse 6 say? That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Meaning, Moms give physical birth to children. It's a natural childbirth. But who, who can only give you spiritual birth? The spirit. He says there, the spirit. And then in verse 8, you've got this metaphor of the spirit being um, likened to the wind. By the way, the word um, for spirit in Hebrew and in Greek is oftentimes used as the word wind. In Hebrew, it's ruach. You say ruach, And in Greek, it's Pneuma. But it means spirit or breath or wind, and so when Jesus says the wind blows where it wills, okay, can anybody here control the wind? No matter how does the does the wind, in a sense, have a mind of its own? And when the wind's going to do something, can you stop it? He says that's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit's going to cause you to be born again, you can't stop it. He's going to do it. Now, what's the evidence that you've been born again? We're going to get there. We're going to get there in just a minute. How do you know the wind? How do you know? Can you see the wind? Can you see evidence of the wind? So you know the wind is there, but you don't see it, but you see evidence of the wind. What's evidence that there's wind? There's movement. There's activity. There's trees swaying. There's buildings being shattered or blown. If There's a real heavy wind. Okay. So... There has to be the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to come into the life of an unbeliever, to give them the ability to see, to give them the ability to enter, to cause them to be born again. And it all harkens back to that Ezekiel passage where Jesus basically harkens back to that prophecy where God says, I'm going to do this. And Jesus is saying, the time has now come. You remember back in Ezekiel where God says, I'm going to do this I'm coming and announcing that it's going to happen now. And Nicodemus, you should know this because you are the teacher in Israel. You should, shouldn't have caught you off guard when I used this terminology, being born of water and spirit. You should have known what that meant. Now let's keep reading. Let's go down to um, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever, who, that whoever believes in him May have eternal life. Now, what in the world does this have to do? I thought serpents in the Bible were always an image of evil. Why is Jesus being likened to a serpent? Well, let's read that passage of Scripture. It's a reference to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is making an allusion to Numbers chapter 21, 4-9. through nine. So let's, let's read that. From Mount Hor, they, that's the children of Israel, set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Yeah, You get manna every day and you don't have to pay for it, and you get sick of it. You call it worthless. They're complaining against God. Then what did God do? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. God said, Okay, if you want to complain, I'll give you a real chance to complain. Let me send some snakes. You guys remember the scene in Indiana Jones where he's down there in the the snake pit? (laughs) All these snakes coming. And then the people of Israel came to Moses and said, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, this is interesting, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, that's interesting, right? You always thought that a serpent was an image of Satan. In this particular instance, what is the purpose of the serpent on a pole? What was the only way they could live? They had to look at it. What did God say? Look at it and you will live. So can you picture in your mind what Moses does? All these snakes are biting people and they're dying and moses makes the serpent what does he do he holds it up and what's the only thing that's required of the people look at it look at the serpent now let's see how jesus interprets that verse 14 jesus interprets it in verse 14 as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up what does it mean that jesus must be lifted up There's a wide range of meaning there. It could mean that Jesus must be lifted up on the cross to die. It could mean that Jesus must be lifted up in the resurrection. It must mean that Jesus must be lifted up and that we make him known. It could be all of those. I think in the context, he's probably talking about the cross and all the things that happen in the cross. Because what does he say there? Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now let's talk about seeing for a minute. Is seeing the same thing as believing? You can see, but Jesus what saved the Israelites in the Old Testament from the snakes? They had to look, they had to look at the pole. What saves you from your the, the fiery serpents of sin? You must, Jesus says here, not just look, but believe. Okay, so here's the $10 million question I'm going to ask. It's a theological question. I've asked it many, many times. There are two sides of the camp. I'll tell you what side of the camp I'm on. You can agree to disagree with me, and it's okay to be wrong. When we get to heaven, you'll realize that, uh, no, I'm just joking. You can, no, you can, you, you, can ha- you can take whichever view you want. This, is a, this, this, this divides camps, but I'm going to put it up here anyway. So let me, we talked about this a lot. So here we go. Are you born again and therefore you believe? Or do you believe first and as a result of believing, then you're born again? Which comes first? Does God cause you to be born again and then as a result of that, you believe? Or do you believe and as a result of that, you get born again? It's a good question. It's probably, it's, it's, in our experience, it's simultaneous, but if we are truly dead, and we are truly um, sinful, and we cannot see unless we're born again, my personal opinion, I think the Bible teaches that God causes us to be born again, and the first evidence that we are born again is what do we do? We believe. Just like the wind. What's evidence that there's wind? There's movement. What's evidence that you've been born again? There's the faith. Um, faith itself is a gift of God. Now, different people ver- differ on that. Uh, I, just, I land on the side that Jesus says, you must be born again, and then the, uh, the immediate result of that is, in the instantaneous moment there, you end up believing. So how do you know you're born again? You believe. Now, let's keep reading John 3.16 through, um, well, let's just read all the way through t- uh, 21. This is John 3.16. We're very, very familiar with John 3.16, right? But I want to show you really how, how beautiful it is. I mean, we've read it all the to- a lot. we memorized it. So let's read John 3.16 through 21. For important it really should be translated in this way in this way God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, the greatest gift of all time that we see in John 3.16 begins with God the Father. For God. In this way, God. Who is God? It's an amazing statement. Who is God? He's the infinite, holy, righteous, omnipotent, glorious, majestic, creator, potter, sovereign, king of kings, everlasting father, Amazing creator, sustainer, the one who brought everything into existence by the power of his word that owes no one anything. And what does it say? In this way, he did what? What did he love? He loved the the world. You may have heard people in the past say, God so loved the world and talking about how big the world is. You know, God loved the world. It was so you know, his love is so big and it stretches to the world. It's so big. Don't think of it in terms of just how big God's love is, or how big the world is. Think of it this way how bad the world is. God so loved a world that was so bad, so evil, so wicked that he condescended to a world that he owed nothing but wrath and justice to and loved this world in such a way that what did he give? What's the gift? For God sold the world that he gave his only begotten. Do you guys know that King James uses the word begotten? Does anybody know what begotten means? We don't use that term anymore, and it's, it's kind of confusing. The NIV, I think, gives the best definition of this. Does anybody have an NIV with them? What is, yeah, what, um, what is, um, Dana, what does John 3.16 in the NIV say? One and only. That's probably the best, that's probably the best translation of that word. Monogones is the Greek word there. Monogones and really it's a title of it's a title that really speaks about the uniqueness of Jesus that there is no other one like Jesus he's the one and only it's not like god had many sons it's not like he was just a generic normal son who is jesus he is god the son he is god in the flesh and so this word one and only monogamous really speaks to the uniqueness of who Christ is as Savior and Lord. He's the great I Am. And what's the promise of this great gift? Whoever believes in him should not perish. Really, the translation says the believing ones. The believing ones. Which is important. It sounds weird in English to say For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that the believing ones, we just translated whoever believes, but this is a present participle in the original language, which means ongoing faith. In the Gospel of John, as we'll see here as we go through it, There's no such thing as a, I signed the card, I raised my hand, I gave Jesus a try, and I just kind of gave lip service to Jesus. It's always a faith that believes, but it continues to believe. Does that make sense? It's an ongoing believing. It's a belief that perseveres. Now, how can it be a belief that perseveres? Because it comes from the Holy Spirit who gave you that. He was the one that caused you to be born again. And he gives you the ability to keep on believing in Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How do you know tomorrow you're not going to wake up and become an atheist? How do you know tomorrow you're not going to wake up and stop believing in Jesus? What's to prevent you from, what stops you from waking up tomorrow and not believing in Jesus anymore? The Holy Spirit and the promise that what? If you're truly born again, you've been born of the Spirit, God is giving you the Holy Spirit, what's God going to make sure? That every day you wake up, you're going to have faith. <laughs> he's going to get you to the end of the road. Now that doesn't mean that you're, that you're never going to struggle or you're never going to have doubts, but it means that if you're truly one of God's children, He's going to make sure you get to the finish line. He's going to make sure you keep believing. Because it's, not, it's something He birthed in you anyway, in the new birth. So that's the promise, that you will not perish. And the word perish there, we don't use that term much. Do we use the word perish much in our language? I perished. I perished the thought. (laughs) People may say that. I perished the thought. I used to get confused as a kid because they talked about perishable goods. and peri- Like, like I grew up hearing John 3.16, perish and perishable goods, and I always thought there was something about John 3.16 that had to do with canned goods when I was growing <laughs> up. And I thought, what, is it, what does this have to do with perishable canned goods? Because didn't know I, cause nobody ever explained to me what perish meant. I always thought, you just say it means, die, it means you're going to die. But that's not really what it means. The word perish comes from the Greek word ap- apolumai. I'm giving you guys a lot of Greek tonight, but... Um, It really means to um, th- this word. Really means to suffer in hell. It really, it really, the words when you see the word perish there in John three sixteen. It's more than just you're going to die. It means suffer eternal condemnation in hell, a spiritual type of death, not just that you cease to exist or you just get buried in the ground. It's it's a spiritual death. But have eternal life. What's the prize? eternal life. Life forever. Now, why, in verse 17, why did God not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world? What does it say there? Verse 17, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. What does verse 18 say? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already which means what why did jesus not have to come into the world to condemn us we're already condemned we're already under the death sentence because of adam's sin we're already born in sin we're already under condemnation jesus doesn't have to come and condemn us because we're already condemned so the question is how do you get out from under that condemnation How do you get out from under that judgment? How do you get out from being under the just punishment of God? And the the question is answered there in verse 18. Whoever believes in him. Look at how many times the word believe shows up. Look up at verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, that whoever believes in him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but who does not, does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is saying it repeatedly, repeatedly. What's the only way you come out of God's just condemnation? You believe in Jesus. Believe. Now, I'm going to teach you another Greek word here. We're amongst friends tonight, and we can go a little deeper. When it says "in, believe in Jesus, whoever believes in Him, in him, in him, in him, all those in Hims, it's the Greek preposition "ice," OK? And it's a very interesting preposition. It literally means "into." It doesn't mean about. Is there a difference between believing about Jesus and believing into Jesus? John is very specific when he uses that terminology because it carries this idea. What happens when you jump off a diving board versus you dip your foot in the pool? One is, I'm sticking my foot in the pool. What happens when you jump off the diving board? You are plunging yourself fully and totally into the pool. When you believe into Jesus, when Jesus says believe into me, it's the image that you're plunging your entire life into him. It's not just I believe about him. It's not just this mental ascent. It's not just I'm giving head knowledge. It's I'm plunging, I'm diving, I'm jumping, I'm I'm giving my entire life into Jesus. And so John is very, very precise in how he uses language. Because there's other prepositions he could have used, but he uses almost always through the Gospel of John, you always see this combination, pistulo ice, believe, into, and this is always in the present tense, whoever whoever believes and keeps on believing into me. So there's always this continuous believing into Jesus that you have eternal life. And so the only way you come out of judgment is to believe. And then verse 19, Jesus says, here's the judgment. The light has come into the world, but what do people love? They love darkness rather than light, kind of like cockroaches. What do cockroaches do when you pull the light? Ah! You know, they get all crazy because they like hanging out in the dark. And so one of the things that we do and we should expect when we do evangelism What are you doing when you do evangelism or when you talk about Jesus? You're shining the light onto a person who loves darkness. And sometimes they may react like a cockroach. What does a cockroach do? Ah, Run and scream and hide. Or they may be curious, but we need to realize that if people love darkness... If people love darkness, and we're coming to them and saying, what you're doing is darkness, you can't love that anymore, here's the light of the gospel, it may be, you may have to come multiple times and talk to them about the gospel before they don't become like a cockroach anymore, okay? That's a weird a weird analogy to think about. So we need to be aware of the fact that when we are, let's just talk about evangelism. Can you make anybody see the kingdom of heaven? No. Can you make anybody enter it? What has to happen Then Jesus says they have to be born again? What's the only thing you can do? Well, two things. Pray and share. Now, not that God is obligated to do things because you pray and you share, but let me just ask you about odds here. (laughs) Okay. I'm not going to play the odds game, but do you think that if you're fervently praying for lost people and fervently sharing, what's the likelihood that more people are going to get saved when you do that than when you don't do that? And again, God's got it under control and he's sovereign, but I I think God uses our prayers and uses our sharing as the means to bring people to faith. And if it's not you, he's going to use somebody else. So that person's probably eventually going to get saved. You just may miss it on the blessing of being the one to be a part of it. So the only thing you can control, just like the wind, you can't control the wind. You can plead, you can beg, you can tell, you can share, you can shine the light, you can lift up Jesus, all the things that happen in evangelism. But at the end of the day, you have to present the gospel and leave the results up to God. Which is sometimes hard, isn't it? Especially with children, because what do we want to do? With children, what do we want to do? Trust Christ now. <laughs> Let's go get you baptized. I mean, we we want to make sure our kids believe and we want to, like, sometimes produce faith in them. And sometimes we have, as parents, have to sit back and share the gospel and share the gospel and pray and tell and, and be a gospel centered family and, and teach and train. And, and then, um, you know, ultimately there comes that time where that child is ready and, and God does the work in them. Okay? So any questions on John chapter 3 before we move on to John chapter 4? And I don't have any, as you see, I have no notes on John chapter 4, so you fill in the blank there. The notes are up here. Um, You guys ready to move into John chapter 4? Okay. Now, when Jesus, let's go, yeah, let's just start, this, this is 1 through 42, it's a long passage we may um, stop from time to time and do some explanation. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Stop right there. Does something jump out to you? He had to pass through he must needs i think the king james says he must needs go through samaria now let me ask you a question if you were to look at a map and you were to go from judea to galilee would you ever following your gps would the lady's voice come on and say this is the easiest route you know would would you go through samaria no samaria is out of the way and what do we know about samaria we talked about this last time who are the samaritans the half-breeds, the ones that, so the Samaritans are, they're hated by the Jews. They were half-breeds, if you will. I hate that term, but they were half-breeds. And they, were, they had false religion. They had set up their own place of worship. worship. And it was out of the way. It was out of Jesus' way. But notice what it says there. Jesus, why did Jesus have to go there? It's what's called a divine imperative, meaning that God, a divine imperative, meaning exactly what you said, it's on God's timetable that Jesus do this. And one thing you know about Jesus, if you read the book of John, Jesus says, I always do what the Father tells me to do. Jesus was so sensitive to the needs of his Father that he had to do this because it was God's sovereign plan for Jesus to do it. He had to go through Samaria. Samaria. So verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay. Now. What time is it? High noon. It's the heat of the day. Let's just write some observations. It's high noon. When do you think would be the best time of the day to go to a well to get water? For the day. We've been to India. You go to these villages, and that's all you see these ladies doing. They go down to the well, you know, a mile and a half. They carry the pot on their head. They bring it up. They wash clothes. They do dishes for lunch. They go back down. All they're doing is take going down the well. In a Palestinian, arid, desert climate, when did you want to go to the well? And by the way, only women usually went down to the well. When would you go? Early, early, early in the morning when it was cool. And you'd get all the water that you needed for the rest of the day. What would be the only reason you would go at noon? Why would you go at noon? Nobody else is there. So it tells us something about this woman, that she's there not when the normal women go to get their water. She's there at high noon, which is the hottest part of the day. She's going there when she knows nobody else is going to bother her, judge her, do whatever to her. So she goes there, and just remember, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And Jesus just had to stop at that particular well. And Jesus just stopped there at noon. Is a coincidence, or is this God's timetable? Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now this is scandalous when you stop and think about it. Here you have a man and a woman talking to each other at a well with nobody else around, because he'd sent his disciples off. Jesus could have been accused of a lot of things here, especially when you find out about the reputation of this woman. And so what does Jesus do? Does Jesus come up to her and say, are you certain that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Let me tell you the four spiritual laws. I mean, does Jesus, I mean what does Jesus do? He, 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 bro- he broaches the subject and just says, hey, would you give me a drink? Because they're at a well. It makes sense. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So, what two barriers is Jesus crossing here? He's crossing a racial and a gender and possibly even a social barrier. She says, number one, you're a Jew, I'm a, Gen- I'm a Samaritan, we shouldn't be talking to each other. You shouldn't be asking me for a drink. You're going to be unclean if you come near me. And number two, I'm a woman and you're a man, you should not be talking to me. What are you doing asking me for a drink? She's probably freaked out. Looking around. <laughs> me and this man here, and he's asking me for a drink, and he's a Jew, and I'm a... What's, what, is this a setup?" Maybe she thought it was a setup. We don't know. She's just kind of concerned. Verse 10, Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, what does he do there? He he turns it on a dime to something spiritual. She thinks he's what? Asking for a drink. And Jesus says, I can give you living water and if you truly knew what living water was, you'd know who I was and that I'm able to give it to you. So he's not fully disclosing who he is, but he's kind of starting a spiritual conversation. Let's talk about evangelism for a moment. This approach to Jesus' evangelism may be a little bit what we call softer evangelism. I hate to use that term, softer. But what we see Jesus doing here is he doesn't come in Full guns blazing and begin. What does he do? He builds a bridge. He begins to talk to her. But very quickly, he begins to talk to her about spiritual things, spiritual discussion. And so, in your conversations, you can easily turn things into spiritual things. How would you do that? Um, I remember it was like last spring when, when Ron Clement came and did the, the training with us on how to do spiritual conversations. Um, and, and he had a lot of good ideas. Um, you know, even just something simple as you're talking to somebody, hey, you know what? We've known each other for a while or, you know, I, I, you know, I just want to ask you a question. I tend to ask people these things and I, I like to know what people think about this. You know, wh- what are you living for? I mean, that's not a question you ask people. I mean, that's sort of a spiritual question. What are you living for? Or, you know, tell me a little bit about um, what's, your, what's the greatest thing you desire in your life? okay. You're not asking them necessarily about heaven yet. You're not asking them about what they believe. You're just kind of building a bridge there, talking about spiritual things. Um, I had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, what was it, a couple months ago, and they never came back because we got into <laughs> we kind of had some, the older lady's like, okay, we're going to leave. We, we don't need to spend more time. But they actually, it was interesting, they had an interesting question that, that they bridged. I thought it was a, I it was a legitimate question. Their question was, we're going door-to-door to ask people their thoughts about the, the state of our world. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of suffering in the world. Um, do you, f- I think it was something like, um, do you have any concerns or fears about living in the state of our world today? I thought that was a legitimate question, because there's a lot of people that have fears, and then, and then they went into their little spe- spiel. But, I mean, even something like that, you know, you know, we live in unsettling times. Have you ever thought about, you know... What happens in the future? Are you scared of the future? Are you scared of what happens when you die? I mean, there's easy ways you can approach the subject to get it to a spiritual conversation. And that's what Jesus does here. He says, listen, if you knew who it was that's standing before you, 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 I wouldn't be asking you for water. You'd be asking me for water, and it would be living water. And then she doesn't quite understand him. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Jesus doesn't have a pot and she's thinking what purely in physical terms right where do you get that living water are you greater than our father jacob he gave us the well and drink from it himself as did his sons and his livestock so she starts to get a little religious here doesn't she it opens up a religious discussion. Hey, I'm a Samaritan and this is Jacob's well, and we we Jews and, and Samaritans share the same heritage with Jacob, and Jacob and his sons ate this well, and so we, we can trace our lineage back to Jacob. Hey, hey, I'm religious. I go back to Jacob. I believe in the patriarchs. I'm a good person. I'm religious. I grew up going to church. I was confirmed as a Catholic. I was baptized as a Baptist. I went to VBS. I, I'm religious. She's, she's kind of she's letting down her defenses by trying to pe- appeal to Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm a fairly religious person. I, I mean, this is a, a sacred well. It's Jacob's well. He's our, you know, she's kind of pleading her, her religion to him. And then look at what Jesus says, verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, you're going to keep coming day after day and draw from this well. And you're going to drink and you're going to get thirsty and you have to come back to the well and drink and get thirsty and have to come back to the well. The water I give you is going to be an eternal flow of living water that's going to give you eternal life. It's like an eternal spring bubbling up inside of you that's going to be life-giving that's going to give you eternal life life so Jesus says and it's kind of in a roundabout way let's not talk about your religion let's go a little bit deeper and talk about what you really need you need eternal life and you need me and what does she say sir give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water again so she's curious I I want it I want the water. I mean, who wouldn't want that type of water? Do you think at this point she's still thinking physically? I don't have to come this well anymore. I don't have to be ostracized. I don't have to come in the middle of the day. I, could, I can have my needs met. Maybe this is a traveling magician that has, like, cool water. <laughs> Maybe he's the everlasting Culligan man. I don't know, whatever, whatever this is. But not so fast. What does Jesus do? He drops a bomb on her. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. <laughs> Whoa, you're getting personal now. I mean, we were, we were having small talk. We're talking about the well. We're talking about water. We're talking about politics. But now you're getting really personal, Jesus. You're, ta- you're talking about my personal life here. Go call your husband. The woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. What does he say? You've been married and divorced five times, and you're living with a guy right now. And notice what she says in verse 19. I love it. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's changing the subject, she doesn't want to deal with her sin. How did you know this? And I don't want to deal with the fact that you know that I'm living with the guy and I've had five husbands. Let's change the subject. That's really personal. Let's start talking about, you know, religion again. We worship over here. You guys worship over there. It's kind of like how many pins can a needle? You know, how many angels can dance on the pin of a needle? You know, this question to try to deflect the real issue by getting back to let's talk about religion again, because I really don't want you dealing with my personal life here. But she's beginning to change. Verse twenty-one. Jesus basically says here in the past worship was relegated to a geographical space for us as Jews worship was relegated to the temple in Jerusalem you had to come to the temple to be able to worship and you guys when the northern kingdom split off and you guys went up to Bethel and you created your own place of worship in Samaria that's where you as Samaritans worship now and Jesus says geography doesn't matter anymore Why is geography not matter anymore? Because I'm here. I am God in the flesh. The hour has now come where you're not going to worry about a geographic place to worship. You're going to worship me. And what type of worshipers does the Father seek? It's interesting. Have you ever heard of a seeker-sensitive worship service? A seeker-targeted worship service? What's a seeker-targeted worship service or seeker-sensitive or seeker-driven? You guys know what a seeker-driven worship service is? In the megachurches, it's a worship service where everything is targeted to make sure that, quote-unquote, seekers feel comfortable in church. So they may take down images of the cross. They won't require you to, to bring your Bible. The messages are real topical. They don't want to do anything to offend the seeker because they are really sensitive to the fact that there's people seeking God and they want to make everything very, very comfortable. And so when you come to a worship service, it's not, the worship service is not really for believers It's more to be evangelistic to non-believers so that they can have a safe place to hear about Jesus. It's called seeker-sensitive or seeker-targeted worship services. Here's my question. Who's the seeker? In this passage of Scripture, God's the seeker. If we want to have a seeker-sensitive worship service, we should be sensitive to the seeker, and it's not the lost person (laughs) It's God. And what kind of worshiper is God seeking? What does it say? One who worships Him in spirit and in truth. Or um, maybe another way you can say it is heat and light, or head and heart. Does God want us to worship Him in light of the truths of Scripture and is doctrine important? Is theology important? Is getting, making sure that we have all of our ducks in a row theologically? Is, is it, do we want to have our heads filled with the knowledge of the truth when we, when we worship God? Absolutely. But if that's all you have, what does that leave out? The rest of you, any passion or emotion or desire. What happens if all you have is desire, emotion, and you have no truth? You can you can kind of get off the rails. So what does Jesus do? He combines both these together. He doesn't say, God is seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit. Or God is seeking worshipers that worship Him in truth. He's seeking worshipers that worship Him in spirit and in truth, which means that our hearts need to be fully engaged with worshiping Jesus as well as we need to have the truth fueling that so that we're worshiping him properly and not improperly according to incorrect doctrine. But I think these things fuel off each other. The more you have truth, what does it do? The more it makes you know who God is and the more you get excited and worship him. The more you worship him and love him, the more you want to learn about him in the scriptures. You guys have experienced that, haven't you? And so when you come on a Sunday morning... To a worship service, what should you be doing? You should be worshiping God fully engaged with all of your heart and your emotions and your passion and at the same time with your mind engaged. And so when we structure a worship service, we want the best of both worlds. We want the passion and the excitement and the joy and the the emotion, but we also want the truth and the content, and the doctrine. And if you have both of those working together, I think that you have a balance of what Jesus is talking about. What happens if you have those out of balance? Some churches, it's all about truth, and they're very stale, and they're very cold, and they're very rationalistic, and everybody may bring their Bible, but there's no love or compassion or um, life. But they may be theologically accurate. On the other extreme, you may have churches that are very, very loving and very, very emotional and very, very passionate, but man, they got some weird theology. So you can go off the rails both ways. What we need to have is a balance of the two. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. God is seeking those worshipers who must worship him in spirit and truth. Now look at verse 25. I think this is her moment where the Holy Spirit's beginning to open her eyes. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. And just think about the goosebumps. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Think about the joy she felt in that moment. I know there's a, I've heard there's a Messiah coming. We have the promise of a Christ, of a Savior coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain all of this worship stuff. It's going to be so exciting when the Messiah comes. And maybe in the back of her mind, she may have known. We don't know. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, you're looking at him. What do you think she did in that moment? And, he's, and we're going to see that. It's interesting, verse 27. "Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. but no one said, "What do you seek?" or "Why are you talking with her?" They didn't want to interrupt this moment. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. She left her water jar. Now that, what does that tell you? She was so excited.'t she, she I mean, what did she come there for to draw water? I'm so excited that I've met the Messiah. I'm going to go back to the town. And what does she do? I'm going to go back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. All of her inhibitions, all of her shame... All of her desire to go during the middle of the day and hide from people was blown out the window because she met Jesus. And now because he changed her, she becomes this ultimate evangelist where she goes back and says, listen, you've got to see what this Messiah has done for me. Come and see Jesus. So she becomes evangelistic. What does she do? She almost really goes and tells her testimony. Come see what Jesus has done and come see him. That's a good evangelistic model. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life, and once you come see him? I'm going to tell you more about him. And obviously she experienced a radical change. I mean, we're assuming that she left her life of sin and that she no longer had that, you know, life and that she repented. But anyway... Let's keep going, because I think there's, there's, there's a tie-in here in the rest of the chapter. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought something to eat? And look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's a powerful statement from Jesus. When he says, My food is to do the will, what, what does it mean, My food. What sustains me, what motivates me, what my daily intake is, what I'm all about is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish the work. To accomplish the work. What was Jesus' last, one of his last words on the cross? It is finished. I've accomplished the work. So Jesus is always sensitive to the work of his father, the mission that his father sent him on to do the work. And then this is what he says the work entails. Verse 35. You do not say there yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many... After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. What was the result of the woman's testimony? What does it say there? Verse 39, many in that town believed, and later on it wasn't, they they said, we're not just believing because you told us. We've seen Jesus for ourselves, it's our faith. We're not piggybacking on your experience. We've come to the point where we've trusted ourselves in in Jesus. We know. We know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Isn't that a confession of faith? Look at verse 42. That's a confession of faith. We have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's a confession of a true Christian. We've heard the gospel, and we know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's our Savior. He's my Savior. I know it because He's changed me. Okay? Any questions about the woman at the well? Or observations? All right, you ready to move into some more difficult water? We may not get finished with John chapter 6. I'm just looking at the time here. It's a long chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in John. But, um... We're probably going to pick up in verse, well, let's give you the context. This is the Feast of Jerusalem. This is the Passover is at hand. That's important. This is Passover. What do the Jews celebrate at Passover? Okay, what it. Yeah, Exodus. I don't know if you guys—we've done the Passover here. We do it about every three years, but there's bread. There's the pots of bread, and there's four cups. The la- when Jesus did the Last Supper, that was the Passover. So the Passover is really very similar to what we do in the Lord's Supper. It involves bread and the cup. It's important. And what's Passover all about? Sacrificing a lamb. So it's no surprise that when Jesus is doing this during the Passover, by the way, we, we won't have time to get there, but when Jesus is being crucified, when is it? Passover. The lamb is being crucified. Millions of lambs are being crucified in Jerusalem during that time, but only the lamb is being, not crucified, but they're being sacrificed for Passover, but only the lamb is getting crucified. Two images in John that are interesting. That this is beside the point. <laughs> I'm just giving you kind of a, when you look at the crucifixion story of John's gospel, there's two motifs that show up about Jesus. He's the lamb and he's the king. He's the lamb and he's the king. Those are the two images that John focuses on. A lot about the king of the Jews, the sign over his head, and a lot about the fact that this is happening over Passover. Anyway, let's talk about the bread of life. Do you guys remember the story of what happened in the Old Testament? What did God provide for the children of Israel every day to keep them fed? What was it called? What is it? What is it? That's what it's called. Manna means what is it. So I keep saying, what is it? What is it? Manna means what is it? (laughs) Okay, so it came down from heaven. What is it? I don't know. It's a wafer thing. What is it? Manna in Hebrew means what is it? Okay, so I'm just playing with you guys. What is it? So God sent, what is it? Every day for them. Every day he sent bread from heaven so that they could be fed. Okay? Now, let's look here at verse 22. This is after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Okay, so he has fed the 5,000. And you have to ask the question, was, what's the purpose of feeding the 5,000? Was it simply to make 5,000 people not go hungry? Well, yes, they didn't go hungry, but in John's gospel, there are seven signs. The first is the wedding feast of Cana where he turns water into wine. And John uses a specific word for, he uses the word simeon, sign. The other gospels actually use the word miracles, or works, mighty works. John doesn't use that Greek word. He uses the Greek word for sign, and there's seven signs. And and it's, it's important that we understand what a sign is. When Jesus performs a miracle in the Gospel of John, it's not just a bare miracle to show his power. It's always pointing to a greater reality. And I've always given this analogy before. Let's say that you want to go climb Pike's Peak, and you're at the base of Pike's Peak, and there's a sign that says, This way to Pike's Peak. What do you do? Are you happy when you climb to the sign? Are you happy when you climb to the top? What's the reality? Getting to the top. What's the sign do? Just point you. A sign in John is simply just to point you to the greater reality. So the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 isn't, oh, cool, Jesus fed the 5,000. It's a sign pointing to who Jesus is and what he does and the greater reality of who he is. So Jesus doesn't just perform miracles to perform miracles. He does them with the intention of pointing (coughs) to a sign. So let's pick up in verse 22, because Jesus had, Jesus had fed them. Now, think about this for a moment. What is it, five loaves and two fish? 5,000 people? And that's not, maybe not including men and women, I mean, I mean boys and girls, and, and, I mean, women and children, it may have been even more. Would have that been pretty miraculous? What would you be thinking? Well, the prices at Walmart are getting pretty high, these food prices. And if we kind of corral this man and keep him around for a while, and he keeps doing this, man, we may have our groceries for, we may have a never-ending supply of groceries. This guy may be able to never let us go hungry. Hey, we like Jesus because he feeds us. He meets a need. He's cool. I like this traveling magician that comes around and gives me a happy meal. Okay? Okay? You can see the temptation of what they wanted to do, right? Look at verse 15. What do they want to do after the feeding of the 5,000? Look at verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What were they wanting to do right then and there? We've got our meal ticket. Let's make this guy king. Let's set up the Wonder, house, Wonder Bread house right here, and let's just have the never-ending supply of our king providing bread every day for us and fish. It was mob central, and Jesus said, I'm not going to have any part of that. I'm not be, it's, uh, that's not why I came. I didn't come to be the ever-ending dispenser of 5,000 know, loaves and fishes. I mean, I did it as a sign, but I, these people need to know the purpose of why I did it. And so he goes across the side of the boat and goes across the sea, and they're looking for him. They're like, wait a minute, we wanted to make him king, and he disappears. We've got to go find this guy. So let's pick up in verse 22 of John chapter 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went into Capernaum seeking Jesus. They're, they're looking for him. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life but the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe into Me whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Okay. What are they seeking? When they're looking for Jesus, are they seeking Jesus or what they can get from Jesus? Is there a difference? There's a lot of people seeking what they can get from Jesus and they don't really want Jesus. I want the goodies that Jesus can give me, but I don't know if I want the repentance and the faith and the following and the surrender. I don't know if I want Jesus himself. And so Jesus says, listen, you guys need to believe in me they're like what 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 do we need to do what do we need to do what work do we need to do and Jesus says the only work you need to do is not really a work it's believing in me and they said to him well we want to see a sign I'm not satisfied you've got to do something extra Jesus feeding the 5,000 was pretty cool and maybe you could pull it off once but we need to see something here. You prove yourself. If you really are who you say you are, then show me the money, or show me. And basically, they're saying, "Listen, you can't top what God did through. You can't top Moses." Moses is our hero. As a matter of fact, Moses was the one who gave us bread in the wilderness from heaven. Moses made sure that we got this bread every day. Moses is our hero. If there's really somebody that we can stack you up against, Jesus, let's stack you up against Moses. Because Moses didn't just feed the 5,000 one day, Moses fed the people every day. They got their theology and their history wrong, didn't they? What does Jesus say? It wasn't Moses who fed you, it was my father. Who fed you? Now that would have been shocking because nobody called God Father. For Jesus to say my father, they would have been like, blasphemy. How can you say God is your father? And so Jesus then says, It was not Moses, verse 32, who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, not it, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And what do they say? We want this bread. Hey, if this is better than Moses, if this is like the manna that came down, if this means we get a happy meal every day, then I want it. I want the manna, Jesus, just like our ancestors had in the wilderness. I want the physical satisfaction of being fed. Okay? I want the physical satisfaction. I want the goodies that Jesus can, can give me. They want this never-ending supply of physical bread. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 35. This is the first of the I am statements. There's also seven I am statements in John. This is the first of the I am statements. And, and, and when Jesus says I am, it's, it's ego, I, me, is the original language. And it Really, it's, it, would, it, would be, it would be said like this, I, I myself am the bread of life. Now, let me just um, hearken you back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is at the burning bush and the bush isn't burning up and, and the bush begins to speak to Moses and say, hey, you need to go down to Egypt and you need to set my people free. And, and Moses says, well, who, who, who are you? Who, who, who's, who's sending me? Who's talking from this bush? And what does God say? I am that I am. I am the I am. Now, Jesus takes that I am and emphatically says, I, I myself am this bread of life. It's not physical manna, what is it, in the wilderness. It is me, a person, a life-giving person. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am, I myself am, the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Coming and believing are the same thing. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me. Is he talking about physical hunger and physical thirst here? What's he saying? It's a metaphorical way of saying, if you trust in me, I'm going to be your satisfaction. I'm going to be your sustenance. It's going to be me not food, not the gifts that I give you, as great as those are, it's going to be a personal relationship with me. I am the bread of life. You need to come to me. You need to thirst for me. You need to be satisfied with me. Verse 36, but I said to you that you've seen me and you still don't believe. Now, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We could spend a lot of time here, and we're not going to get a chance to finish this, but let me begin the discussion. Jesus comes down from heaven just like the manna comes down from heaven but he comes down to do God's will. And what's God's will? Look at verse 39. What, so let's, let's just look at this passage. We're just going to look at these few passages of scripture in depth and ask some exegetical questions about the text right in front of us. Verse th- so Jesus says, My mission is to do what? God's will the will of the Father I've come down from heaven to do God's will what's verse what what's 39 what's God's will he's going to what lose nothing and raise them up on the last day so this group of people that Jesus is coming to fulfill God's mission for he's not going to lose them is he And he's promising to raise them up. So what we see here, if Jesus is not going to lose them, does that mean we can lose our salvation? No, this teaches eternal security. Jesus is not going to lose this group that he came to fulfill God's mission for. And what else is he going to do? He's going to raise them up. This talks about the resurrection. This talks about heaven. They're going to receive their new bodies. They're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's God's will. God's will for Jesus is that he's going to come down and he's going to, as the bread, he's he's not going to lose them and he's going to raise them up. Now, what else is God's will? Verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So what's the other will of God? There's a promise that whoever, back to what? Whoever believes in Jesus is going to be what? Let's just, for lack of a better term, say saved. Is that what Jesus is saying? It's God's will that I come down from heaven as the bread, and I'm not going to lose this group that God has for me. I'm going to raise them up, and how do they become, how, what's going to happen to them? What's the other promise? They will believe in me, and then when they believe in me, they will be saved. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, Right? Pretty straightforward, right? It makes sense. But Jesus says something that makes it difficult. Is this coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, is this possible in and of themselves based upon what we've seen already? If they're blind and they're lost, and they're dead, can they come or believe in Jesus? Well, Jesus is going to answer the question for us. Let's move down in the text. Verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he know, now say I've come down from heaven? They, didn't, they thought he was crazy. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Okay, verse 44 is very important. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Houston, we have a problem. How are you saved? By believing in Jesus. What does Jesus say right there? No one can come. Does that mean no one has permission to come or no one has the ability to come? Because can can mean two things. It means ability. That word in the original language really means power or ability. No one in and of themselves has the ability to come or to believe in Jesus. Why? Why can no one come or believe in Jesus on their own? They're dead. They're lost. They're blind. They're enslaved. They haven't been made alive yet. They haven't been born again. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. What does he say? Unless, he puts a big unless there. What's the unless? What has to happen to that person? The father must do what? You guys tell me. Draw him, and we often stop there. And what's the promise? And I will raise him up on the last day. So here's the promise. Those that do come, Jesus is not going to lose them. Those that do come will be raised up on the last day, and those that do come only come because the Father drew them to come. Here's the $10 million question that I'm going to leave you with. It's going to make you mad. Does God draw everyone And before you answer that question, if God draws everyone, then will not everyone be raised up on the last day? Go back and look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What's the Father doing? He's giving an all to Jesus. What is that all doing? Are they going to come to him? Yes. When they come to him, are they going to be cast out? No. Okay, so the question then becomes, okay, who's the all? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Can that mean every single person who's ever lived? And if you say yes, then you have to say every single person who's ever lived... Ends up believing and gets raised up on the last day. Is that true? So the all must be another. The all must be a, a subset of a larger group. And so I'll give you the short answer, and we'll pick it up next week. But the all here are those before the foundation of the world, whom the God has chosen to be saved, were given to Jesus, and those whom the Father gave to Jesus, God will draw them. God will cause them to be born again. They will believe and they will have eternal security, never be lost, and they will be raised up. That can't be said for those that aren't saved. So I'll leave you with that. It's a mind-boggling concept. Any questions or blank looks? You got some blank looks. Now you know why they grumbled. Any questions on that? It's 7.59. I hate to leave it at that with one minute left. I told you we wouldn't get through all of John chapter 6. We just got started. (laughs) Because it's a long chapter and you have to follow Jesus' flow of thought through the whole thing. he deals with them is a lot different than what he did with of the world to me. Yeah. And it's like those times where it feels like in some of the times when he's talking to the Pharisees, like it's to judge them, mm-hmm. it is to tell them, this is what you have done yeah. wrong all this time. Well, here's the one... So th- Well, here's, here's, yeah, and here's the one thing we have to remember. Evangelism Jesus style. Here's the one thing we can't do. We're not Jesus. So when we do evangelism, what's the one advantage Jesus had over us? He was God. He could look into people's hearts. He knew who were his and who weren't. He knew who wasn't going to believe and who wasn't. And he could say specific things to specific people at specific times because he was God. Now, we can't do that. The only thing we can do is just share the message and trust that God's working on people's hearts. But Jesus had the advantage of knowing everything about the situation and speaking directly to what needed to be said in, in any different timetable. Time so it's kind of unfair to say evangelism Jesus style because ultimately we can't do evangelism. Yeah. at different times because I might be afraid to yeah. lay it out for some people who just need it laid out. Yeah. Well, Jesus said, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplished his work. And I think he had the confidence to know that my primary job is to do God's will. <laughs> I think you have a great point, Don. The more we're in tune with Christ, the more we're following his word, the more we're being obedient, and the more we're secure in who we are, and the more we have confidence in the gospel, I think the bolder we can be and just say it. And let the chips fall where they may. Kind of scary, but kind of invigorating. (laughs) All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. I know we've gone a little deeper tonight, but Lord, I pray it's been helpful. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for causing us to be born again. Thank you for giving us the gift, the greatest gift of Jesus. Thank you for saving us from um, perishing, from eternal death, but giving us eternal life. Thank you for giving us living water that bubbles up inside of us. Thank you for Jesus for being the bread of life that we can feast upon always and never go hungry or thirsty, Jesus. Help us to be good evangelists, to share the truth, and help us to be confident in who we are and who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.